Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, we discuss the HBO Max Batgirl Fallout, A24's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies hits theaters, and director Helena Rain joins the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 225 of Real Blend, a podcast that doesn't let ourselves get attached to anything that we are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat of McCarthy. Okay, we hi. feel the heat around the corner. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend, and we'll explain why uh, we're making heat references later on in the show. Uh, in addition to all of that, we're going to discuss some of the HBO Max Batgirl fallout uh, that happened. And I know it's a little bit old by the time you guys listen to this, but there's still plenty of Topics to get into in terms yeah. of like what happened with that and, and the implications it's going to have on the industry moving forward. We have A24's uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies hitting theaters, and that means that director Helena Rain is going to join us to discuss the film uh, as our main interview. And by us, Kevin McCarthy is joining us on the show from Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hey, Kev, how are you? Sean, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm fresh off my fourth viewing of Nope, uh, and I am just wow. in that that continued deep dive into that film. And uh, I appreciated the heat reference. And uh, there's some cool, exciting things happening in the world of heat. Um, if you're a fan of those of, of that movie um, that we're going to tell you all about. But Michael Mann is back in a big way. So super excited about that. Someday we're going to have to circle the date and have a conversation about Nope, Kev, because um, yeah. our ship's missed each other uh yeah. i went on vacation and we had the whole tarantino thing in the middle of it but we might be on different pages with nope but i need to see it a second time before will, we get too far down that conversation i know gabe is with me and i think what we'll have to do i, I listen i you know me I, I care so much about this stuff i will i would love to sit with you and watch it because one of the things i've been doing with nope is I've been talking to a lot of people after they see it, and I end up having 30, 45-minute conversations about thematics. My parents hadn't been to a movie in two and a half years, and I convinced them to go with me when they were visiting. Um, it's it's a masterpiece, man. It is, I, 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 I'm trying to be better about using that word is too much, because I do use the word masterpiece a lot, just because I'm enthusiastic and I love these films, and um, they mean a lot to me. But 
this is the, the ambition in this film and, and the filmmaking is just truly astounding. And, I, and anybody listening to our show right now, if you haven't seen it, uh, get to a theater to see it if you feel safe. Uh, and obviously check out our Jordan Peele interview. All right. As Gabe mentioned, Gabe Kovach is filling in for Jake Hamilton, who is on assignment. Um, and so the, the guy has been introduced and we're going to get the housekeeping in a hot second. I want to let people know that uh, in addition to our interview with Helena, that's going to be popping up in the show in a little bit. We have a very special segment that's made possible uh, this week by our friends at the National Association of Theater Owners uh, and talking about um, how movies are back, essentially, and how people are feeling more comfortable going back to theaters and, and that movies are doing well. So stay tuned for that in a minute. Uh, just to get through some of the talking points, as you know, we're on YouTube. Hopefully you're watching uh, the show here. We're seeing a lot of engagement with people who are checking out the show yeah. uh, on the YouTube channel to be able to watch a video when we have for different directors or listen to someone like uh, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. That was a really great show that people have been finding. Uh, go to youtube.com backslash real blend podcast to do that. Uh, and then of course we have the real blend premium, which is a special episode that drops every Monday where we tend to play a game or get into a mailbag or go deeper into some of the circumstances that surrounded some of our interviews like uh, Tom Hanks in Nashville or uh where Nashville, Memphis, where were we Memphis. for that? Memphis, one? Memphis, gotcha. That's right, Graceland. Um, or the 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 strange happenings uh, of the day that we interviewed Quentin Tarantino, which included going yeah. to Kevin Smith's house. Um, so uh, check the description for more information uh, on where you can sign up for Real Blend Premium. Um, there's a movie called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies that A24 has out, and Gabe and I have been talking about this ever since we saw it at South by Southwest. It is a very unconventional. Uh, sort of spin on the Agatha Christie's uh, Ten Little Indians uh, concept where there's a group of people in a location and they keep dying one at a time. And you sort of follow along to determine uh, who it might be uh, or what else is going on. There's a sort of big picture mystery happening. We are thrilled to have uh, the director of that film, Helena Rain, uh, joining us for a conversation about her new horror film and her spectacular cast uh, for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. So without further ado... Uh, Helena Rain, talking bodies, bodies, bodies on the Roblin podcast. Hi, Helena. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Um, uh, I'm Sean O'Connell. I'm with the Real Blend podcast. I normally have two other hosts uh, with me, but with vacation and everybody running, I'm handling this one uh, on my own. But it's good because I love your movie so much. Uh, I saw it at South by Southwest for the first oh. time. And then I was able to catch up with it again last night. And I just want to start by asking about South by and what it was like being in the Paramount uh, and seeing an audience experience it for the first time. Yeah. So South by was of course such a defining moment for me because this is only my first American film. I, I, everything is new, you know, it's I'm basically moved to another country for it. So my whole life changed. So go, going into this with, to, to South by Southwest, I was so nervous. And also that was just the birth of a film, right? We, we we didn't know, did we actually pull off this tone that we want the genre bending, you know, it's a dark comedy more than anything else. And then to be in this huge theater with so many people, I, I uh, you know, before it started, I was literally dying. And then, <laughs> you know, the audience reacted in the way it did. And then you were there, it was very wild and loud. And, and people were not only laughing, they were also reacting like verbally to the screen, which I thought was, absolutely amazing so that moment to me was, was defining like that was when i thought okay maybe you know i can actually entertain people with this film maybe hopefully i can actually like touch people with this film oh it's one of the most entertaining movies i've watched this year in any genre it's not just horror it's the, the script is so fantastic and your direction is 
is incredible. Um, so this is a, a filmmaker's podcast. I, I wanted to encourage you to get as, as geeky as you can about the details of putting the film together. And so to that end, uh, because the mansion is almost a, basically its own character, I'm curious how much time uh, you spent discussing the geography and the layout of the house uh, as you moved your characters around it. Of course, it was uh, incredibly uh, hard and also important that we would find a house that actually had all the different rooms that we, you know, created in the script. Um, because, uh, first of all, I was limited as far as budget. I was limited as far as shooting days. Uh, so I was so aware of that. And 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 then in the script, we were just like typing away, you know, and there's a basketball court and there's a... <laughs> and so to, to, to find that was, was a huge challenge. So once we, we found this crazy mansion that was totally overpriced, nobody wanted to buy it. And it was already deteriorate, deteriorating. There were like dead mice in the pool. It, it, it looked really... We cleaned all of it out before yeah. people started to worry about my actors. Uh, but I loved it. I I just thought it was a great metaphor for the broken American dream, if you will, because uh, it looks a little bit ridiculous, but also beautiful at the same time. And then uh, half of the movie takes place in the dark. So we needed to have a house that, you know, could also carry that and the claustrophobic feeling, even though the house is so huge, it was important to me because that's, of course, the mental state that they're going to be in, right? They're going to feel like more and more entrapped after the Wi-Fi goes down. So yes, we 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 did discover the house for two weeks. Me and my DP went in there. We sort of had stand-ins because we couldn't rehearse so many weeks with the actors. So I had like people there and I could actually like make... Um, choreographies of how I wanted to plot out all the scenes because there's so many group scenes I wanted to come super super prepared once I had the talent uh, on the spot so we yeah we spent two weeks in that house just acting out all those scenes I would also act them out myself because I'm an actress I'm retired but I need to like feel it before I can direct it and then to that end so through those rehearsals what changed the most if anything uh, a lot of things were uh, uh, changed because uh, you know, you can in your head, and we have storyboards. And you can, you can, you can think it all out. But the space itself will just will just force you into certain certain movements. And um, yeah, I think also working with my stunt coordinator, pulling off all the deaths, things just change because again, you can think well, and then we throw her out. You know, uh, there's a moment where B gets thrown out of the house. Uh, but but to actually do that, like how? And for me, because the film. Even though it's a parody, even though it's a comedy, to me, the film is also hyper-realistic. So mm -hmm. I did want all the fights to look real. I, I come from the theater. I work with Ivo van Hove. He he doesn't like stunt coordinators. He Everything needs to be real. He comes from the 70s from performance art. So even though I do work with all the coordinators and, 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 and create a very safe atmosphere, I do want it to look super real. So mm -hmm. a lot of things that I thought about in my head especially the ending, you know how the ending is. Yes. Uh, to actually pull that off physically is a very different ballgame. You can think everything out and make drawings of it and try it yourself, but to actually make a certain actor, specific actor, do it physically sure. is a whole different thing. So that will also dictate how you use the space. Um, Helena, you mentioned uh, how so much of the film takes place in the dark. Um, just talk to me about the obstacles of filming a movie in the dark and some of the tricks that you use. I, I love how your use of neon you know, in certain aspects uh, and flashlight beams. Like what are some of the creative ways that you came across of, of overcoming shooting in, in a largely dark location? Yeah. So um, the, 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 I think the best idea that I had myself uh, on script level was to uh, make it a, a hurricane party. So okay. to make the whole gathering a hurricane party, because that way we could we could already have them. You know, they they knew the power would probably be cut out. That's that's how Americans, you know, they have they actually exist these hurricane parties. So they prep 
they, they become preppers. Sure. So, so they had some emergency lighting, they had some flashlights, and that would, of course, give me and my DP the, the opportunity to then later create some light at least. But because us coming from Radical Art House in Europe, we really wanted to make it real. So they actually had to like light each other with their iPhones, which is, of course, an, an extra layer to them already having so much on their mind as actors. But I think that works really well. And then to have Rachel Sennett, who plays this great character Alice we decided to change her just into a lighthouse like I was like because they're all preparing <laughs> to, to be beautiful for this party and she uses these emergency neon lights uh, around her neck as like jewelry and around her wrists and then later of course she becomes a source of light for the others as well so right. it, it basically I mean before I started um, shooting I really thought oh my god is this going to be our downfall the dark people are gonna get sick of it after five minutes but it actually paid off in this sort of style that we found and this sort of and it's very cinema-like and and it, it became very inspirational so I'm, I'm super grateful oh it lends to the suspense completely yeah. because you're constantly looking around the frame to see what you might be missing the yeah. way that the characters in the house would be also, it puts you in their shoes. Yeah, and that was, of course, very important to me because I wanted to have this style, even though we're doing this this, this sort of cliche slasher genre, I wanted to make it very visceral and primal and animalistic and sensuous as well, like almost sexual, you know, in every scene, even though there's no not a lot of sex in the film at all. I wanted to make it very erotic. And I think to, to for you as an audience member to be in the middle of that and and, and not knowing like, you know, do, we, do I want to be part of this group? Is this group very scary? Like that, that was uh, the goal. Uh, you mentioned Alice. I'm just curious what her podcast is about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so for people who haven't seen the film yet, uh, so <laughs> from the very start, it's obvious that Alice has a podcast and uh, the other ones have their opinions about it. But yeah, no, I mean, it's such a, it's just a, Rachel brought this wonderful lines to the film where she goes like, you know, how much it takes to to create a following and 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 do they even realize how hard it is to pull it all off? Well, you you know that, you know. Uh, but um, yeah, so she she's a, a, a genius girl as far as improving and, and she did such an excellent job as, as the character of Alice. Well, I mean, one of the things I love so much about the movie uh, and, and your approach to it is how the the use of uh, so many modern, you know, technological elements, uh, apps and Wi-Fi passwords and, and and everything modernizes it and really puts us in the in the headspace of the demographic, you know, of the people who are at the hurricane party. And I'm just curious when the cameras weren't rolling, how much your young cast was filming themselves on set or living chunks of their lives on social media? Did it reflect the art, essentially? Well, it does. I mean, they, of course, they they are... Uh, they know that I come from a classical theater background, so they they were very focused and everything on set. But of course, it it, it that is their world, you know. And and it, especially now when we're on the press tour and we were at Comic Con together, and 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 of course they're also encouraged to do that because it's great PR for the film. But they are constantly, you know, making TikToks, and that's their whole that's their whole world, you know, and listening sure. to music and showing each other things on their phones, like it's how they communicate. And 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 that and that we use that, of course. And I also asked them so many questions about it because I did say to them listen, I want this to be very authentic. I want you guys to actually take your friends to the cinema and be proud and not feel like, oh, we're making, you know, these old people try to make this film about Gen Z. So it was really a collaboration and I wanted to use their way of communicating. And 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 to be honest with you, it has also become my way, like all of our ways, right? Because we're all addicted to our phones and we all, you know, we're communicating through a screen right now. Sure. So I do feel that it is, technology is just, you know, a problem that we all, and, and of course also a, a, something beautiful, but, but something in our lives that has now taken us over completely. 
Well, I feel like you you will not get enough credit for this because if you do it too much, uh, the commentary becomes heavy handed. And yeah, I think that the way that you utilized their use of the technology was so perfect uh, through this mm -hmm. so that the characters were um, likable, uh, you know, and, and yeah. still you you were rooting for them at this point. They weren't obnoxious to the point <laughs> where, you know, a lot of horror movies, you have these characters who you can't wait for them to die. Uh, and instead, I loved all of your characters and wanted yeah. them to somehow make it through. I mean, they do. And, and, and of course, they are. They, some of them are very dark and, and they're and they're toxic and they're narcissistic but i think they're also relatable because we see parts of ourselves you know and and we see how especially with young people how how everybody now grows up in front of a camera normally that would be something actors would deal with you know and and and, be, and how they would be so afraid how, what they look like all day long and that made them into narcissists often and now it's like everyone so it is of course also a very harsh thing to deal with and i feel that making an entertaining movie about it but at the same time secretively having this darker message I hope that we, you know, that we can succeed in that. Uh, Maria keeps showing us new sides uh, of herself as a performer. And, and in oh this God, movie yes. in particular, uh, I think you draw on like a vulnerability uh, that I haven't seen in her before. So what was it like tapping into that aspect um, of her personality? Yeah, of course, I saw her in Borat and I immediately was obsessed with her and 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 in Borat of course she shows us how genius she is as, as somebody who can improvise but also somebody who's just has these comedy talents you know and she's actually classically trained just like me and so we share the same background both European and I think this part is actually really hard because a lot of these other girls or and boys get a lot of jokes you know and they and and she, for her it's, it's it's she's more the outsider she's witnessing this all taking place and and that is not often the most you know gratifying thing to do so I feel she's showing her range like beautifully and i'm obsessed with her how she's of course a beautiful woman to look at but at the same time she has no vanity she has no ego she she transcends any of that and she becomes this beast in this film you know and yeah. you even start to suspect her even though that's that's almost not possible it's still because you know uh when you see it you will, will notice the murder mystery of it all but because of how she acts and how she I just love her whole um, energy and 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 how 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 she pulled this role off. It's it's really incredible. Oh, I love that you brought that up next because I really want to go in that direction. If if there were any bits of direction that you gave to your cast uh, to almost throw the audience off, like to behave a certain way, uh, to maybe keep us guessing, because I, I was surprised a lot of times with these whodunits. Once you know the result, you know it's you, how rewarding is it to go back through. But on my second watch, I was just as entertained uh, <laughs> and I was trying to look for little bits and pieces. So what did you sort of sprinkle through to, to make sure that your audience was kept on their toes? I think I'm really fascinated by honesty and in, in, in even the most absurd circumstances. I was already that as an actress. Like, I, I think my whole acting style was always very vulnerable and raw and just trying to let the audience look into my soul. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to tell them to, to do, even though we're doing a comedy and we're going to make jokes, I really want you to like totally open your, like, you play with your 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 deepest wounds i want to see them all you know you, you can keep them for yourself you don't have to tell me about them but i do want your honesty at all times so i think that authenticity also helps weirdly with the murder mystery but also what i would do is take different versions like you can play a little bit like that and do it a little less do it a little so that i later in the edit could choose like how far because for instance with lee pace's character who's the outsider he's an older guy that alice brings in 
through Tinder is, is what we discover like a day. Nobody really knows him. And of course he becomes a suspect. So with him, we really tried to do different things, different, like I, I literally said with the big scene in the basketball court that you will mm. see if you see the film, I literally let him play it very innocent, very evil, very like, I, I, I just have him do all these different things. And that gives me the opportunity later to really make that puzzle because I know I was going to have to channel Agatha Christie to even, you know, get where I wanted to go with this. Well, I love it because you build in a game inside the movie, you know, so there are times when people don't know if you're still playing the game. Also. Exactly. So, of course, the whole metaphor of it being like they played a game until the very end, you know, like they, they and the whole film is one ritual and, 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 and it's common on the game. It is the game. It's super meta. So, of course, a satire. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there are any specific sort of horror movie cliches that you either wanted to go out of your way to avoid uh, or maybe tackle them and, and sort of flip them on their head. I really, I, I, I feel um, I'm not a horror expert, but I did feel like all the horrors that I've, of course, uh, watched uh, over again, or, or uh, I, I wanted to go around the cliche of the characters, you know, like the innocent one, the beautiful one. The, and especially we live in a new time, which is so exciting to me, where we can actually go beyond that, you know, and we don't need that. And also, I don't believe in good and evil. I believe we're all beasts and we're all capable of killing and we're all capable of, of, of doing horrifying things. So I wanted to have, be these characters to make to create them in a way that they're super layered and that you don't really know who you can trust and who you can hang on to. Just like B feels really when she enters that house, she doesn't know, you know, who is lying, who is truthful. Are they really vain and narcissistic and, and, and just big egos or are they lost and lonely? They are all all of that. You know, and in the end, as you know, when you know the ending of this film, it basically is, there is no evil guy or girl doing all of this. No, it is in us. What does it take to become an animal? What does it take to become a beast? You know, what does it take to become a killer? And they can be pretty mean to her uh, from the yes. start. <laughs> you know, there's a, it's a slew of like inside jokes. You know, you know, you never want to be the newcomer in a group like that. A group that has known each other for oh. years. And I think we all know this feeling. You know, we all have been in situations, whether it was when we were still in school or later in life, where you just want to belong so badly. And we all feel like imposters or aliens. And we all feel not pretty enough and not intelligent enough and not this enough. And I certainly felt that in my life a lot as an outsider, you know. And I think this is just a universal feeling that we all can tap into. And that's also a big theme in the film, of course. And what what is she capable of, you know, to do to, to, to start to belong to this group, you know? Right. Um, Helena, whenever we get a chance to speak with directors, they'll tell you that um, party scenes and nighttime scenes are the most physically exhausting uh, to mm -hmm. shoot. Oh, so shit. you made an entire movie. Oh. <laughs> it's the entire movie. Yeah, oh, you made the entire movie. It's only my second film. No, but I think they're right, though. Um, first of all, night shoots are completely horrifying and exhausting, especially if you get a little older like me. Um, and second of all, party scenes are really hard, but in our case, that dance scene, that, that really long dance scene, it, it was one of my favorite shooting days ever. We basically locked them up into a room with my DP and I told them like, you know, they had little assignments like this needs to happen then, that needs to happen then. But the rest, I just gave them freedom because at that point we rehearsed so much. They knew the characters so well and it was so beautiful to watch them and, and just to see all of this evolve and the tension between them. I think. A huge draw for people to go see this film is literally the chemistry between the actors. And again, it, it, there's not a lot of sex in the film, but the film is so erotic and so sensuous and so primal. And, and the chemistry in this group is just insane.
Mm -hmm. The amount of um, screen charisma uh, that Pete Davidson has also is just off the charts. You Wonderful, can... uh, uh, his face, uh, his energy, even when you do camera tests, you know, before you start just to see uh, the colors match and the makeup. And even then, my DP, Jasper, who, who has seen a lot of his hardcore European DP, you know, he was just like mesmerized by him. Even though he was just acting goofy because he, you know, we made him just stand in front of the camera and he got really awkward. But it was, it was, it is just an absolute joy to work with him. And he has something absolutely magical. Did it take a while to find that pink outfit that he rocks? <laughs> no, we have a wonderful um, a designer uh, and, and she's stylist and, and she came up with that. It's, it's, it's a supreme pink uh, suit. And, and I thought it was, I thought it was really great because even though he, for me, he represents in this film with this character, this toxic masculinity, you know, that is super attractive, but at the same time, very dark and, 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 you know, driven by fear, of course. Right. And so I thought it would be really great if he would be wearing pink clothes. <laughs> and he then can is, pull it off, you know. Is there more of a backstory to his character having the black eye? Well, it's basically he says that Max has done it. So I so I think that we of course you can discuss forever like is, is that really true? I think it is. I think there is a love triangle going on with, you know, Emma's character which is played by Chase. Uh, she, you know, everybody says about her, you always think everyone is in love with you, you know, and, right. and and so Max is maybe in love with her. And, you know, so there was a fight between, I think what I wanted to say is that that's also why, uh, and I don't know if I, I spoil too much, but the men die first, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's a big theme in this film about uh, male, uh, you know, mas toxic masculine behavior and, and also how the pressure on men to be competitive. I mean, that's really baked into the film till the very end, of course, you know, uh, how, how, how they need to, to perform and need to be the most powerful. And so I think Max ha has been part of that um, triangle a little bit. All right, we're going to dance around the ending a bit because I certainly want everybody to experience it themselves. Um, but to that end, anytime you have a murder mystery or a whodunit of some sorts, um, it only works if the ending is satisfying. And so I'm curious at what point during the process that you had your ending. Was it always that ending and you were just working towards it? Um, so I think when we came up with the idea for the ending that absolutely excited me that is to me the ending is the key for me personally into the whole film mm. like when we thought of the ending that's when i knew i could do this that's when mm. i knew i could actually make it my own and not betray my my sort of like what i built my whole life to be which is you know darkness like i wanted i wanted in the end to say something hedonistic almost about mm. and nihilistic about life because i feel we're all gonna die and that's an absurd thing that we're all, we know we're all gonna die yet we sit here like we dress up we go through the motions you know war is happening people are dying and it's crazy so i feel the ending was just a great idea but then on the page it works right but then mm. but then how do you do it in a way that people actually believe in and so it was something that gave me a bellyache until until South by really. That's when I, that was the first time that I know, okay, I think this is going to work. Okay. You know, but I have been really sick to my stomach about that ending because I think as an idea, it's really, 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 really great. But, you know, you can only wait for people to, to, to not see it coming or to, and to actually, you know, have a reaction to it. And, and up until now, the reaction has been very loud and, 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 you know, intense. Yeah. God, it's so true because you go through this entire film and if the, if that ending doesn't land, you know, it's exactly. enjoyable, but you'll come out leaving saying, ah, oh, yeah, but if only they figured that out. But you did exactly. it. Yeah. So I'm, no, I, I'm, I am proud of that. And on all of us, because, of course, we did that as a team. But uh, no, I am. I'm very I'm very I'm very in love with the, with the ending of the film. All right. I'll get you out here on this one because I'd be remiss not to mention the music. Um, your music choices are fantastic. I love the fact that 
um, a lot of times the music that's playing in the background will work its way into a scene. So I'm curious how you maybe use it on set uh, to keep your actors in the mood. I love your questions. You, you, you're the first to mention this because this is something that I love and I just thought nobody's ever going to notice. But yeah, so I love to use score and extra and, and, and needle drops and make that blend all of that and not and, and make it abstract, really, because, you know, am I in, in their heads or am I actually there with them or am I watching a film? I don't know. So, um, yeah, so, so we have a lot of needle drops there. I, I took a lot from the girls themselves. They, they came up with their playlists, uh, 212, you know, uh, the dance scene. And I actually play that. I'm very much like, you know, it's horror for the sound people. Of course, sound department goes insane. But I want them to really <laughs> feel that party mood, you know. So I play that out loud for them. And sometimes, of course, you have to do little bits where you cut it out. But I, I really wanted them to hear it. And then my uh, one of my very dear friends is Jim Taihutu. He's a he's a, a director from Holland, but he's also a DJ. He's, they called Yellow Claw, and they made very you know how do I say that um, with respect because they're insanely popular. But it's a little trashy, you know, their music, and I love that kind of like vibe, the techno vibe. And so I have them and that kind of music where you don't know is it do they play it on their phones or is this score? You know, right. you, you don't know that. And then I work with Disaster Piece at the same time, a, a brilliant composer who also scores, you know, It Follows, but also video games, like, and he's a DJ and he's an artist. Um, and I told him, like, I just, I don't want you to go in, into any emotion, no emotion for the girls. Like, I don't, because we're just witnessing this. You know, this film is just, these these are animals and they're slowly starting to eat each other. And so we created this, like, based on TikTok vibe kind of like soundtrack to distort that and make it artistic and make it our own. And it's just, it just drives the story forward and it doesn't really reflect because I feel the moment you would reflect with these characters, the movie stops because then they would actually look around and be like, Oh, wait a minute. You know what I mean? So you can't have them stop. That's so fascinating too, because you also probably uh, factor into the attention span of the modern audience and how long you can keep them in a scene and 100%. a shot. And we're, and we're playing a dangerous game, of course, as you know, with this film, you know, because that is a hard thing to do with this concept that with, with the ending and everything that we, of course, know that is going on, that that puzzle and to keep them sort of to keep the audience like, yeah, yeah, keep watching, keep believing, keep believing, yeah. you know, and make it believable that they don't, that they don't see it. I mean, all of that the music contributes to. And, and also I wanted to feel at moments that you're in a club, that you're in a music video, but with awareness, you know, in a sort of a meta perspective. So I said to everyone working on this film, don't be afraid to be trashy. Bring your trashiness, bring your, you know, bring your low culture here. That's what I want. That's for me, that's pop art, you know? <laughs> that's the, uh, that's the tagline. Bring your low <laughs> culture here. <laughs> I want that on the poster. Um, okay, so for the music alone and because of your visuals, that's why we're extremely excited for uh, our listeners to go see this uh, in a theater and experience it with a big crowd. I'm just curious um, if you could tease a little bit of what you're working on next. Do you have a script in, in play or what Where can what can we look forward to? I definitely want to continue to work um, with A24 because I'm totally obsessed with them. And I uh, want to make, we're going to make an erotic thriller. So I'm going to go, I used to um, work with Paul Verhoeven as, direct, as an actress and, uh, you know, I want to continue to carry his torch. That, that, that's a great uh, baton to pick up and keep running with. There, he's a unique voice and I'd love to see if you can, if you can replicate it. Exactly. That's that'd my be, That'd be fantastic. Well, Helena, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And, this is uh, amazing. Thank you for your super smart and fun questions. I really enjoyed it. Even though you were alone and you're supposed to be with all your colleagues, this was amazing. Thank you. I'm I'm the best of the three, to be honest with you. <laughs> there so, you go. So I was lucky. Huh. Yeah, you lucked out. You lucked out. <laughs> Good luck with the film. I can't wait till people see it. Bye bye. Thank you so much. 
This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We want to thank A24 and, of course, Helena for coming on the show. Uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is going uh, wider. Is it going wider wide, this week? Wide this week, yeah. It's going wide this week? New York, LA last week, and then wide this week. I do have a quick question before we roll yeah. on. Uh, right. I, don't, I don't know if this is a quick answer. Best A24 film. A24 oh. film. Jeez, oh, best I'd have to spend time thinking about that. I is that a blend game? Can we give a studio a blend game? I feel like we should, and that, right. they seem like they earned it. The The first one that popped to my mind, although I really do have to survey what their landscape is, yeah. but I would go with the Bling Ring. I love the Bling Ring. Oh, really? what a love great it. one. Dude, that one that Sofia Coppola has where we're outside of uh, Paris Hilton's home. Up on the and hill, just, and you're watching them walk through it. The whole one is so Tremendous. great. I, I, I go to Spring Breakers, weirdly. but oh, okay, interesting. Else, but I need to go back through. This would be a good blend This game. is a fun blend game. Yeah, right, I'll, I'll, I'll take note. Maybe a little way. I'll take note. But bodies, yeah, bodies, are, bodies yeah. is is kind of up there. It's it's got a terrific script. Well, we and have everything everywhere all at once this, this year as well. Like oh, jeez, yeah, that's. True. I mean, it's the, the, their highest grossing film of all time. Was the, yeah. was the lighthouse a twenty four? Yeah. Yes. So. Wait, lighthouse? is is a twenty four like? And I don't even know where I'm going with this, but like they're kind of like the the cool studio. Oh like, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, like. Like in a weird way yeah. of like, it's cool to talk about. They're the hipster studio. studio, and I mean that as a compliment. But the, there's mm-hmm. there's a level. They've gotten to a point where there's they have that following right. that is into it because it's a twenty four, and not necessarily about anything else, which is great. I think it's great. I think like the fact that they've built themselves up as like a name. People mm-hmm. say like, "Oh, they're only gonna they're only gonna invest in a movie if they think it's an interesting idea." It's a, like Criterion almost, right? A like little a, bit. Yeah. A label like that. The perfect yeah. example was yeah. at South by we're watching um, X, which is an A24 film, another great A24 film. And when the logo came up, the crowd again, we're at South by Southwest. So we're, we're in we're in the crowd for it. But the crowd cheered the logo yeah. at the front. And then the director came out and was yeah. like, well, since you guys cheered that, you know, you guys are the right crowd for this. Here's a sneak peek at the, the sequel or the it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting history that I wouldn't mind going back and looking at, like 
like their how they got their start, yeah. how they found that brand. Because I remember what happened cover- the first twenty three times, you know. Yeah, right. on that. But I wait. Is is there a story as to why they're called a twenty four? Probably sure there is. Twenty four yeah, frames a second, maybe. That's a great answer. I I just remember seeing Spring Breakers, and I remember that tone of that movie because that was Harmony Corinne, right? And mm-hmm. I remember seeing that and going, "Oh, this is like a." There's a 24. I just think of like, I just think of a bunch of different colors all, all at once. Like yeah, it, it's yeah. such a vibrant, they just have a very specific tone to their films. I just, I would love to see like their pitch meetings because everything everywhere all at once is different from everything they've ever done. But yet it feels like an a 24 film. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, it's yeah. really kind of a weird, wasn't Northman. Was that a 20? No, that was focus. No, that was yeah, focus. See, that's the thing. Like, there's the Fox searchlights of the world and the focuses of the world, and sometimes yeah. I get mixed in of like what, who falls where, sort of thing. There's yeah. Paramount Vantage. There was like all these like working think, films. And to yeah, give A24 yeah. credit, though, I think A24, in large part, is why. Like, I think they pushed those those names, those labels, to invest in more interesting things that A24 For is sure. making successful. Like, yeah, I think they're a part of that movement. Yeah, I think they've earned that. Position. Midsommar was a big one. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And they're really launching people like Lawrence Pugh launched from a A24 film. Well, look and, at the, the Dan- look at the Daniels now giant deal five, at Universal. Yeah. Like, yeah. Five picture deal at Universal after was it five picture or five year. I think it was five year. Uh, either way, they just crossed a hundred million. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple weeks ago. And that film is amazing. I, I'll tell you right now, it's funny because that's, that's a film that. You know, when it comes out, you don't know if it's going to find you don't know. Like A24 films are interesting. You never know if they're going to find a large audience. Like there's a mm-hmm. there's a niche group of people who watch their films. But everything everywhere all at once is kind of like I would argue has transcended that and breached that barrier because I live in I live in an apartment um, building. And sometimes not and this sounds creepy, but it's not creepy. But you can actually see sometimes depending on the time of day, like you can see like into some someone's apartment. And if a TV is playing it's pretty obvious. And if you walk outside uh, and I just saw some random uh, apartment watching it the other day, I'm like, and cool. again, I don't know if that, that doesn't mean anything, but like, I, I just find it face against the glass. No, <laughs> I just find it. I was, I, it kind of made me, it made me happy because it was like, it's a film that I didn't, I, yeah. it's a film that I love. And obviously it's become a worldwide success. Um, but a lot of a 24 films do fall into a category of like my mom and dad will never see that or see this or, my right. neighbor or whatever. Uh, it was just cool. Like seeing it kind of everywhere. Now. Um, I, I, I'm sure that they, I, I'm pretty sure that they're backing uh, the greatest director of all time. Uh, Darren Aronofsky, when he delivered, yeah. when he does Wait, the whale, the whales, a 24. I'm pretty sure it's uh, a 24. That's interesting. Okay, so now I'm I know we're like down a rabbit hole here, but like yeah. eighth grade, eighth grade is oh. a 24. The green Knight is a 24. Yeah, the witch is a 20 Kev, A ghost ghost story is a 24. Ghost Story might be their masterpiece. Their masterpiece. Uh, oh, should we do an A24 tier list? Holy shoot. Oh, no. that sounds like fun. Ex Machina is A24. Uncut oh, Gems is A24. Oh, Lady un- Bird is A24. No. How many How many are there? Oh, Lady Bird is a special film. Too many. Oh, we, Too many. Be, that's a crazy tier list. That'd be an amazing that would tier be the list. Only, that might be the only list that rivals Marvel for the uh, too many A's and S's. We got to oh, do good, this. Good time is A24. Yeah, good time is A24. Yeah, we got a lot going on do here. Do they even man. have a C? What have they What have they released that I wouldn't? Oh, I think they do have a couple of Cs. I yeah. have a list. They may Heret- even have a D or an F. Is Hereditary A24? Probably. 
I think, think so. I think he, I think they did all three of his. Only I don't really like, like killing of a sacred deer and, and movies like oh, I, that. Like, oh, I like I like Yorgos a lot. There too. I like his there too. Out there for me. But but lobster. But no, uh, really his like other one, the, the favorite, wasn't a twenty four. Like dog tooth. Uh, dog tooth. No, dog tooth is great. But I don't know that like that's a twenty four. I think that was like independent. I think that was his yes, first was. like well, breakout. Why do you guys think the Daniels? So uh, this is an interesting question because the Daniels obviously gave them their highest grossing film of all time. Yeah. They're very, very filmmaker oriented studio, um, which is interesting because obviously, like, you know, considering Nolan went to Universal, you start to wonder, like, what's Universal doing for filmmakers? Because they're I mean, obviously, Jordan Peele has completely free reign over what he wants to do, which is great. Mm -hmm. And he deserves it. Um, But you start to wonder, like, if I'm the Daniels and you give them their highest grossing film, is it weird then to jump to Universal? And I get the business. I, I understand. I thought that way, yeah. but I think, one, I'm sure that they're, like, proud of that. I'm sure, sure that, like, I imagine that they're, like, very happy to see them, you know, their success as filmmakers. But everything, everywhere, all at once cost them $25 million. A deal mm. at Universal gives them the chance to spend $150 million, potentially, on a movie. And then that gets risky million, because when you... Dollars. And A24, I, actually, I don't know what their mm-hmm. most expensive movie is. Um, it's got to be. Find they're it, all kind of in that same range. Heredit- Hereditary was. It looks like. Oh no, those are grossing. Uh, okay, Green Knight might have been. Green Knight might have been expensive. I don't think Green that Knight was expensive, but I don't think they think? spend. I don't think they've ever spent. You know, surely have never spent a hundred million dollars on them. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. but I they, think that's but, kind of the Daniels might be working that way, or at least that's what they sold. Universal. <laughs> My concern would be though when you and again and 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 this goes all the way back to Jaws, uh, obviously not an A twenty four film, Universal film, but in terms of necessity as the mother of invention, um, mm-hmm. when you're making everything everywhere all at once for twenty five million, that's again that's a lot of money in general. That's nothing for what that movie that's looks insane. like. Yes, like I that, know. like that film. If you think about every single. Costume design and set piece that I was gonna say, Michelle, just costume alone. Yeah, yeah. Michelle Yeoh's. I mean, I can't even imagine. Like even that shot where it's just like, uh, like, like thirty different versions of her quickly cut together. She did yeah. all of those. Yeah, and and that's why, like, that's why I worry about when a filmmaker goes to a larger studio and they're given a lot of money, because then you take away almost that that aspect of like, oh, we need to do it this way because Jaws obviously works because the shark didn't work. Right. And so these little things that come out of budget problems end up becoming the biggest things of what makes a movie great. And I think the Daniels are smart enough not to allow a budget well, to mess up their process. But I just kind of like that example. And- you yeah. know, when Spielberg got a budget, he didn't lose who he was. It almost amplified who he was. But yeah. but that is rare. Am- You're right. Amplified. Amplified. Uh, Real quick, sh- before before we move on to the HBO Max kerfuffle segment, um, you mentioned the Green Knight is p- potentially up there. How much? What What's the budget you think on the Green Knight? I'm going to guess. See, Everything Green Knight was 25 for reference of 65. No, Green Knight. Only because David expensive. Lowry also had David Lowry had some cachet with them. Uh, Kev, what's your guess? So I think I think Green Knight looks really expensive. um, But if you think about it, it's kind of all set in a very small. Because I think Ghost Story cost him thirty five dollars. It was like (laughs) a pie and a sheet. sheet. (laughs) I'm going to go. I'm going to say 20 million for Green Knight. Uh, According to this, 15 million dollars is all they spent on the Green Knight. (laughs) I'm telling you. That's wow. the point I'm making yeah. is look at what these directors are doing with yeah. these budgets. Like, but I, it's think, like, I think that answers the question about why they went to or why 
the Universal Switch happened is I think Universal has the opportunity to give them a much larger budget. And who knows what scripts they're sitting on or ideas they're sitting on that and to be even bigger. I don't think A24 holds a grudge against any filmmaker that moves that moves up to the next level. I think level. that's their business model, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think they'll point. just they find the next up and comer. If you can spend twenty five million dollars and make a hundred million dollars, you're you're doing fine in Hollywood. Absolutely. I mean, here as we talk about budgets and and the uh, the leeway that that gives you, um, whether you're working for A24 or even a studio like Warner Brothers, uh, this recent news about the Batgirl. Uh, which everybody's probably up to speed on at this point, goes to show you that a $90 million film can be fl- can be flushed or shelved uh, if you're a big studio like Warner Brothers, which is relatively insane. So just to give you guys a very quick background, uh, in case you're hearing about this for the very first time, uh, there was a Batgirl film, film, not series, uh, that was going to be going to HBO Max. It was always supposed to go to HBO Max. Uh, it was not going to get theatrical distribution. Um, and Warner Brothers decided uh, the new regime... Uh, now that the uh, Warner Brothers Discovery merger is coming together and David Zaslav is the new CEO, he's overseeing everything and he's looking at DC films. And, and in his opinion, DC films needs to be held to a higher standard than it was held by the previous regime, which would allow things like not to knock them, but like a Birds of Prey film uh, or I'm trying to think of another really good example because the Matt Reeves ones don't necessarily fit. Uh, maybe Shazam, maybe Shazam even falls under that. Uh, when he thinks, I think he thinks that they should be focusing on the Trinity, which is uh, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, and the critique of we can't even get a, a Superman movie off the ground, and here we are releasing a, a Batgirl movie, uh, made him decide that he was going to just pull the plug on it. And, you know, you start to ask, well, what was the reason? And they said it was some test screenings, but then you heard that the test screenings were the same for both Black Adam um, and another Warner Brothers film that ended up being really successful. I forget which one it was. Uh, then there was a lot of conversation, and rightfully so, about just the bad look that it came uh, of canceling a superhero film uh, with a Latina actress and Leslie Grace, who people know is talented with a, In the Heights, watched her in In the Heights, and, and giving her this opportunity to be a superhero. Um, and then one of the things that really stuck with me is Bilal and Adil, um, who everything I've seen them do so far has been not good, but great. Uh, they revived the Bad Boys franchise that had been dormant for a really long time and made it really exciting. Uh, the two episodes of Miss Marvel that they did were fantastic. Uh, they were the ones that were loaded with style and loaded with attitude and fit really well uh, with the character and made people excited for what are they going to do with Batgirl. So it's, you know, we'll never really know the full story, I don't believe, about why they decided to pull the plug. Um, but it feels like they want to do a reset at... DC specifically, DC Films, uh, and bring in a, a, a team, as they say, a creative team that's going to map out a 10-year plan uh, and and decide where it's going to go as a studio. Now, the problem is I feel that DC is already so far down a, a road right now uh, that is not under a coherent plan that the that trying to wrangle it into a, a workable universe is going to be really, really difficult because Matt Reeves is working in a, in a corner of the of the landscape that it doesn't connect to everything else. And if you tried to make it connect to everything else, it wouldn't work necessarily. We've had conversations about how do you put Superman or Wonder Woman into the, the Gotham that he's created? Uh, it's too grounded. It's too realistic necessarily. Um, Black Adam is about to be introduced as, you know, they're like, oh, he's going to become the new Thanos for DC. But how do you do that with The Rock? He's such a likable guy. And how does he connect? Um, and then the issue of The Flash, which I don't even know if we're going to get into The Flash 
in this conversation, but it, it right. it's coming with a lot of baggage that could prevent that movie from even seeing the light of day. Like between now and, and when the flash is supposed to come out next year, I'm not hundred percent confident that it's going to get released. Um, because, you know, one of the things in the Batgirl movie that they didn't take into consideration and just axed anyway was that it was going to be another Michael Keaton in Batman, which you think would be just the nostalgia alone would be worth releasing. Think about it. that. So, think about what you just said. We might miss out on two chances. There's Michael Keaton mm-hmm. as Batman in two different because he's supposed to be in Batgirl as well. Yes. Two different times we were supposed to see him as Batman. We might never see either of them. Sean. You're Crazy. obviously somebody who's who knows a lot about this subject. So I, yeah. I'm just going to ask you flat out, how can they possibly release The Flash? And why has The Flash not been canceled if Batgirl was canceled? I have. Well, the answer to that, I think, is is strictly money. The amount of money that they I think this Flash is closer to a two hundred million dollar film than the ninety million dollar film that, that Batgirl was going to be. still a lot, though, man. But they can write it off as a loss. 90 is definitely a lot. And yes, and I believe that there was an article that said that it, it was a tax write-off and they had to make a decision by a certain amount of time in order to make it eligible for this tax write-off that they ripped, that they wrote Batman uh, back off as. Do you think they're banking on the idea that general public doesn't know Ezra Miller's issues? I, I, and I say issues, uh, here, by, by, but I mean that by like the, the legal issues he's going through. I, I would say it's less that they're banking on them not knowing. Yeah, the legal issues, controversy surrounding his behavior and, and all that stuff. We're not going to dive into here because it doesn't really make sense for us to try to unpack that. But that right, information sure. is out there and is available to you if you if you want to read about it. But it's it's damning stuff um, and it would make sense for them to cancel it. I would say the the gross studio thing that I think is happening instead is that they're hoping when what they've been hoping is that it will somehow get resolved and will somehow... It's getting uh, worse. Oh, no, I know. I'm not saying they're winning this bet, but I'm saying I, I think mm-hmm. their bet is, well, it's a long time before that's supposed to come out. We don't need to release any press materials on it. Let's just, hopefully by then, the news cycle is so crazy these days that we can just act like it never happened and we can release it. Like, that might be what they're yeah. banking on and not and that people don't know. Ezra Miller, do know. It's very Ezra Miller isn't, like, super well-known, I guess. That's that's the only thing I could think of, like, in terms... And I don't mean that, like, in our world he is. But, yeah. like, if my mom and dad were like, oh, I really want to see The Flash, I don't think they would say that, but... Mm-hmm. They probably have no idea that the but lead DC, star DC of that DC Flash isn't, isn't trying to make... Th- um, isn't trying to do what Thor like they're still not on the level of Marvel like they're still just playing to a DC audience like it's it's a smaller audience I think but so. the no. comparison that I'm bringing up is Army Hammer and what Death on the Nile had to do recently yeah, and Death on the was Nile was they were afraid to do and and press is interesting, interesting like because we're so dialed into press right but like Disney didn't really know what to do with that because he was mm. like a co-lead in that. He wasn't even the main guy. Like Gal Gadot, I think. Lot. But he's in it a lot. Exactly. Um, and the problem with Ezra and Kevin, when you ask, like, how come they're not pulling the plug on it? Like, yes, obviously he's the lead. But there are a lot of other things that are happening in that movie that I think the studio doesn't necessarily want to bail on uh, just yet. Sasha Cali is supposed to be introduced as the, the new Supergirl. Um Again, we talked about Keaton potentially coming back and and then just the amount of people that worked on that film that like are not responsible for the things that Ezra Miller did, you know, thousands of people. Yeah. Do you can it just because, you know, your lead actor is involved in in headlines like this? Now, you could argue, yes, you know, that like these things are far more important than uh, a frivolous superhero movie. Um, But there's also a lot of people who put their blood, sweat and tears. The the Muschietti's, you know, probably 
think that they put together a really great movie. But like, did how do you release it? I have no idea. It's really complicated. Uh, could you see a scenario where they go ahead and release the film and they just tell people up front that Ezra's not going to be doing press because of the news and we hope you enjoy the film regardless. And th- and th- and th- that's one question. And then two, and this then feeds back into the Batgirl discussion. It's like, it just seems so unfair to Batgirl because like Leslie Grace isn't, isn't, isn't in any trouble that we know of. Obviously like Ezra is in, in the news. And I don't say that right. at all in a funny way. I just, I feel that it's interesting that like that film, whether it had bad test screenings or not comes with what well, we can tell again, based on the surface level, a clean slate uh, and no controversy in that sense, right? And then, right. and then, you, and then here you have something that's that's super controversial and obviously could hurt the film. Right. And you just want, and then you just wonder, like, why one gets canceled and the other ones continue. That's it, the thing. We'll yeah, um, hopefully yeah. they write someone writes a book. Um, you know, like ten years from now, that'll. T- I'm not pointing at you, Sean, but that's that's one of those Hollywood stories <laughs> no, that you. like. Do you guys think Flash studio- comes out? I think yes, it's. I, I, think, I, think I think it, it does, to. but I think it's too early to have like a really good guess on that um the Batgirl situation for it? me that that sucks no i don't think so i think it would cost too much money because apparently he's in like more than most i think i read more than like most well, superhero there's movies there's, yes. there's multiple versions of him in the movie right the, the quote that i oh. saw was that he's basically in like ev- like more than most other titular character superhero movies he is in more shots than typical because he, he's like it would just be wow thing to reshoot but um no the background situation the thing that i think is ironic is that, and it just kind of sucks the the studio politics of it all, is if this has gotten so much interest and the Batgirl being what it is and just sort of superheroes being what they are, if they were to release this in theaters and just say like, we, we're not going to do this, we don't like this, like that's an awful thing to say about a movie when you release it. The curiosity of the audience alone would probably give it half a billion dollars. Like it would, <laughs> it would sell, it would make like... If, if not more, if, from people wanting to see what, what it is that they're not wanting to put out. Sean, I don't know if you know you can answer this or Gabe, if you can answer this. Um, so, OK, we've obviously seen situations where fans rise up and and get things released. Um, John, are you and familiar with anything? You, yeah. So all too familiar. Was it Jaws? You, you're sure. Was it Jaws? Was it Jaws had a big following? <laughs> do, do you think that there's a possibility that the backlash could have them reinstate the film and then go to what Gabe was just saying just now? And now it becomes the blockbuster based on it being an underdog in a sense of being canceled. I'll jump on that one, Sean, and say that I don't think that following that, that sort of, I don't know what you'd call that expose, that, that, that article on the Snyder movement that really undercut it and, and sort of pointing out that a lot of that was, um, the bots and stuff situation, regardless of the details of that, the connotation, the sort of understanding around that situation that has changed the color of that as a, as a, as a movement. Um, And also the sort of meme disaster of Morbius getting pushed by the fans to re-release itself. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think fans have a lot of um, a lot of sway for studios at the moment where they mm. would feel any pressure, especially if it's the situation where they're they're really cutting it to write to write it off. You know, well, and, and yeah, and that's the thing. we'll never I'll play, see it. Just, I'll play devil's just, advocate in this sense. Yeah. If David Zaslov really wants to improve DC. Because I, I think we could argue that for the past few years, DC has had a mix of, you know, hits and then movies that were kind of like, uh, 
Ironically, it's made it's made interesting movies though. Like like Birds of Prey yes. because it was allowed to kind of be its own thing was an interesting movie. Yeah, it was great. Batman is a fantastic movie. Like, yes, I almost I I think Joker is fantastic. Yeah, like, I think Joker is a really great movie that wouldn't yeah. have come from a studio system that was trying to fit everything under one umbrella. It was an example of this director has an idea. Let's give them let's give them uh, some rope. Made a with billion a dollars. Man. With an R rating. And got like 10 Oscar nominations? How many did it have? 10 or 12 or something like that? And it's like getting a musical got... sequel? Is that... <laughs> Lady Gaga. Yeah, yeah, super bizarre. But if he honestly feels that, that he <laughs> wants DC films to pivot in a different direction, and it takes them completely breaking from whatever they had and, and just clean break, and from here on out, we're going to do what we're going to do, um, then, you know, whatever movie it was, was going to be in, in the crosshairs, and it happens to be... Uh, a 90 million dollar Batgirl movie yeah but Flash um, is in the crosshairs yeah Flash is still in the crosshairs you're right it under is. those under that standards that movie should still uh, be uh, up for grabs but yeah same. there's a lot of time between now and then I'm telling you so, Sean yeah. alright yes. today is August 9th yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I think Batgirl comes out oh interesting I think, I think they're gonna finish it and it's gonna come out they're, they're, I just have a hard time believing and I know, I know the story. I know what, and Gabe has great points. Well, I the just, situation, maybe, the, the thing we haven't touched on yet, and, and we do, we do have to move on, but like it's, it's, there's also a very strange thing happening where HBO max is getting, don't know the adjective to, to include here. Cause they haven't really been clear about it. Right. It's right. merging with discovery plus with that whole overarching merger. And next year they've promised there's going to be a new thing that is going to have all of that content supposedly, but they haven't been clear about it. And so it's hard to make a guess because we don't know. Like, I think HBO max right now is like the third largest streaming service. I think it's number three. If I'm it's according to uh, subscriber numbers, okay. um, I, I could be off a placement or two there, but I think it's top three. Um, so they're in this weird place where they're like, are you just going to burn HBO max as a brand after you spent all this time trying to differentiate from HBO and HBO go and, mm-hmm. and, and then that was let everyone know, let everything, everyone know, but, yeah. that, but they, but they, but they pulled it off. They let everyone they know did, that all their, all God, this content was, was under this umbrella and it's a very popular streaming service. And now it's, it's very strange to me that they're. I think one uh, of the sad things is that I'm HBO not quite Discovery. sure. I don't know what they're going to call it, but I'm not quite sure if the drum is going to keep beating for Batgirl. I think there were a lot of people who were upset at the decision and rightfully so, but it, yeah. I don't think it's a Snyder cut case where people want to see a justice league. You and know? the different, the difference being the Snyder cut always had a bad movie that they could root against. For sure. This, they had, they could say, we saw that movie and that was bad. And we understand that hey. there's something better that exists. There's an ambiguity and an, and an unknown around Batgirl that I think you're right. It'll it'll probably dissipate. Um, but I hope Bilal and Adil go back to Marvel. I heard, I saw some people cool. saying give them one of the give them Secret Wars since Destin mm. Daniel Cretton has the Kang Dynasty right now. Give them Secret Wars. I would love to see them just tear into an Avengers movie like that. That'd be phenomenal. Oh, well, they haven't assigned so um they haven't assigned a Secret Wars director yet. Not yet. No, not yet. Interesting. So, I, know, I wouldn't mind seeing Bad Boys Four. Uh, talk to Will Smith. Bad Boys. What are they going to call it? Bad Boys Five Life. <laughs> they really blew that title. That's so frustrating. I think they blew it because isn't there a rap song called Bad Boys for Life that uses the four? I think they couldn't use it or something. Or there's a. I think isn't there's already that, something that exists. Is that a Puff Daddy song. 
Uh, that I don't know, but I think I remember looking that up at one point, and I was like, oh, maybe this is why they were like, let's burn this now. I'm so old. That feels like something that's been used before. All right, well, speaking of uh, the debate about whether things are going to streaming or theaters, uh, we had a chance to sit down with Phil Contrino, who's been a friend of the show uh, and works for, he's the director of media and research for uh, NATO, not the NATO that uh, that you're thinking of, the, the National Association of Theater Owners. Uh, and they have been uh, supporters of this show from the from the earliest days because they love the fact that we talk about box office and that we're big proponents of the theatrical experience. Uh, and so we wanted to get a chance to sit down with with Phil and talk about the state of the state of the theatrical experience and the summer that that movie theaters have been enjoying. Um, so we have a uh, an interview that we did with Phil on behalf of this show. And this segment is brought to you by NATO. Um, and so I do want to give a huge thank you to them for just uh supporting the show and putting their weight behind real blend uh, and catching you guys up on, on the things that they are doing and ways that you can help support them. So uh, without further ado, here's Phil Contrino joining the real blend podcast. Phil, we look at the box office uh, every week on this show and we talk about how the films are performing and, and it's uh, we've been incredibly encouraged uh, by what we've seen with the numbers that come back in uh, every Sunday and into Monday uh, and kind of came to the consensus about two weeks back that it was we're okay to say the movies are back you know the people are coming back to the theaters and, and flocking to support uh their franchises do you guys think that we are maybe overselling it underselling it what's the state of uh of, of nato right now no i know i think you're right on i mean i think looking at the success stories that we're seeing on a weekly basis um it's really encouraging right people are excited about the movies they're coming back for for the movies that they're interested in um the challenge that we still face as an industry is just the release schedule is a little lighter mm. than it was in 2019. Um, but that's largely at this point a, a, an issue with production lagging and, you know, playing catch up a little bit. And that's a problem that, that will, you know, be fixed. But um, yeah, I mean, it's been a summer of massive, massive success stories that kind of dispel the notion that people don't want to come back and we're, you know, hurtling toward this, you know, inevitable future of a streaming only world, which I don't think anybody wants, you know? No, um, definitely. Because I think what the numbers kind of reflected as well, too, is that these these franchises that people come to the theaters to to see on the big screen, the, the big, big spectacle that's delivered by Marvel Studios or the Jurassic franchise uh, and, and movies that really held their release dates until they could be back into theaters uh, are performing extremely well. You know, you kind of expect those movies to do well. I think Minions is even crushing, you know, more so than we anticipated. Yeah. Um, and so what was your reaction to the way that that those reliable franchises performed? I mean, it's it's essential, right? They're, they're, they're kind of keystone of the industry. Blockbusters are always going to be the heart of the industry. Um, but what we need now to come back more is kind of the mid-range you know, non-established IP titles. It's it's really, really, really crucial to the future of the industry and the health of the industry to get people excited about those movies again and coming back to those movies. And and there have been obviously some big success stories on that front this this summer. Obviously, the biggest one being Everything Everywhere All at Once. I mean, just a massive success for A24 to have their biggest box office hit ever it is a huge accomplishment. So. Bill, do you think that was word of mouth that that helped power that? Word of mouth and also, um, a, a, look, a segment of the movie-going population saying, this is the thing that I want. You know, not everybody goes to see Thor or Top Gun or Minions, right? There's there's a 
big section of the moving army population that wants an everything everywhere all at once or our Marshall the shell shell with uh, shoes on <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know in, in movies like that um, or, or Elvis even which you know is is somewhere in between all of those so um, and and it's really crucial for the box office because you know yeah you have the big temples but they don't get you to to where we were in 2019 mm-hmm. on their own right you need the the full full breadth of it well, how exciting is it too to see um, a, a name like Jordan Peele uh, build an audience? You know, when you know that he's making films like Nope uh, that are going to be for the theatrical distribution, like he he'll shoot with IMAX cameras, you know, and and he wants to make sure that that's part of the immersion and the and the experience. And then to see a film like Nope perform as well as it has. Yeah, you know, I think there's a big misconception that um, when people go to the movies, they only want safe and comfortable. Yeah that's a big part of what they want and they're always you know that's why we've had the hits that we've had this summer but more and more i think people really want to be surprised and and shocked and really engaged in that way by the movies they see and that's why nope is is such an important movie and and what jordan peele is doing is so important Mm -hmm. Um, by building a, a brand turning his name into a brand of of something that people say okay this is going to engage me. I'm going to walk out of this movie and be talking about it. I'm still thinking about that movie. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll still it'll randomly pop up in the, in my head in a scene. And, and, you know, I've seen it once. I'm going to go see it again. I think I feel like there's a lot that I miss. Um, and it's, it's one of those movies that you can't have a knee jerk reaction to either. You know, um, yeah, I think reacting to that, you know, it's got a simmer. <laughs> well, both of those titles that you brought up, um, Everything Everywhere All at Once and Nope, um, are films that required uh, repeat viewing. You know, it, it was almost like, I can't wait to see this movie again. I have to get back into the theaters uh, and experience it, especially with the crowd. You know, Nope in particular, where the crowd was, uh, it, I've seen it twice. Uh, that second experience was completely different the first time through. Right. Uh, and I think that's only uh, the type of experience you get when you get a challenging filmmaker like Jordan. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, I, I saw Get Out in theaters, right? And it, the ending has this like rapturous kind of response. And then I watched it again at home. And, you know, when his when his friend turns up in the police car, which was like the big mo- moment in the movie, it just fell flat. You know, it, it, at home, it was just like, okay, I, I miss the experience I had when I was in the, in the theater with it. And um, I mean, you know, I, you see a lot of movies like that where they're clearly edited with you know, the, 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 the fact that the crowd is going to react to it in mind. And then when you watch it at home, it's like that moment doesn't work quite as well. So, so let's talk about another movie that uh, has been pulling people back to theaters uh, in massive waves. And that's Top Gun Maverick. Um, it, it is unlike to me, and I've been doing this for, for decades now at this point, uh, unlike anything I ever thought I was going to see again, you know, just a movie that has the legs that it has shown, you know, it reminds me a bit of Titanic almost where Titanic was always at the top of the box office. Uh, right. You can't go anywhere uh, this summer. If, if I'm at graduation parties or just social gatherings and people are constantly asking me if I've seen it, what did I think of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, were you guys knowing that it's Tom Cruise and knowing that it's a, a proven brand, were you still at least surprised at how well it performed? You know, not, I guess not really because we actually had it at CinemaCon. Yeah. Um, we had the, the first screening of it really, I think publicly. And 
you know, you can feel that you can feel, you can feel the energy in the room from the exhibitors and from the media and, and just from everybody, you know, and you knew this was going to massively exceed expectations, especially even like looking at Tom Cruise's box office history and it just completely shattered that. And I think, um, you know, the, the appeal there was the fact that it, it was a true throwback mm. to, to those movies from the eighties, which, and I mean, this as a compliment barely had a plot, right? <laughs> it was like, you know, yeah. that was my first reaction out of that. It's like, this movie was just about great action scenes and, and funny one-liners and everything like that. And that's totally in line with the 1980s. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so, I mean, for, for that to do what it did, uh, it's, it's just amazing and it's, it's still playing and, and it shows the importance of kind of giving a, a movie room to breathe mm. in, in the theaters, right. And letting people experience that way. Um, will I ever watch Top Gun in my house? I, I don't think so. Right. Like, I mean, I just, I just don't picture myself doing that because um, it's not going to be even remotely close to that. No, um, whereas other movies, you know, I will, you know, I see 50 to 100 movies in theaters a year and I still have like a massive Blu-ray collection and, and all that stuff, you know, um, but that one, no, no, not the same. <laughs> you talked about what's to come uh, the next several months, uh, and I want to get into your thoughts on the release calendar, but specifically, I want to get your comments on the news that a, a title like Elvis, which was going to have that 45-day window uh, and head to a streaming service, is now removing that 45-day window and staying in theaters uh, longer. That has to be encouraging based on uh, the way things have played out a little bit recently. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's largely filmmaker-driven, right? There are a lot of filmmakers that that, you know, create for the big screen of mine and Baz Luhrmann is, is certainly one of them. I mean, he's been, he's been aggressively out there promoting this movie in theaters and, mm -hmm. and um, that that's why we got to that point. I mean, yeah, look, it's that, that's another movie that, um, you know, needs to be seen in theater to, I think really truly be appreciated. And, and that's the way that people are responding to it. Um, and, and look, yeah, I mean, like, as a trade association, obviously we don't say, okay, the window has to be this or mm -hmm. anything like that. We don't get involved in any kind of business competitive issues, but we do advocate for, for movies just generally across the board to, to have their time in theaters and let people discover them there first and foremost. So mm -hmm. Absolutely. So uh, as we transition out of the summer and into the fall, uh, what do you sort of predict for the next several months uh, when it comes to the release calendar? What do you hope to see happen? So I, I'm really optimistic. And I think, you know, the, the kind of the problem that I talked about when we first started um, about, you know, how how robust the release calendar is, that that gets a little gets better in the in the fall and the holiday season. I think there's a lot of strength there. And more importantly, it's a, a di diversity of product. There's something in there, you know, for, for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the family titles, you know. Uh, to to Avatar, to uh, Wakanda Forever, yeah. you know all these massive movies, and then uh, you know a lot of what I would call the the Oscar bait um, movies, you sure. know, right? Which have been ha haven't been at full capacity in the last few years, but um, I think are going to make a big comeback, you know, this year. Um, and you know, Black Adam is an, is another big one, um, anchoring October. So so yeah, I mean, there's there's just a lot there, and it's a typically a massive um movie going you know period i'm really 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 excited about it and i think most people are too so it's remarkable that i keep forgetting that avatar is coming 
Um, <laughs> maybe because it's been delayed for as, as long as it has, you know, or Cameron's been tinkering on it for as long as he has. But like, this is a follow up to, you know, what was and I think now is again the highest grossing movie of all time, you know, so this sequel should be so anticipated. And I and I, I do think it's going to do extremely well when it hits theaters, but it just keeps slipping off my radar for some reason. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. This always kind of happens with James Cameron movies where people start to say, well, this movie seems like it might be in trouble a little bit. You know, like Titanic, you know, it was like the budget is out of control and this is going to be one of the biggest studio disasters of all time. And I still remember Avatar. I was covering the box office for another site in in my past job then. And a lot of people were like, well, they're not even marketing the movie yet. And this is going to be another expensive bomb and, you know, things turned out well there. So, um, yeah, I think never bet against James Cameron is the the moral of the story. (laughs) You know, and it's like, I I think it's really going to, it's really going to surprise people. Um, I cannot wait to see additional footage from it. So, um, you know, as we just look ahead to the next couple of months and and talking about the different, the franchises are coming, why do you think it's just so important uh, that the studios offer up uh, diverse options, you know, for the audience. So that, as you sort of mentioned before, there's a little bit of something for everybody, no matter when they decide they're going to try to go to theaters. Yeah. Um, it's, you, you never want um, any segment of your, your audience to to look at what's in theaters and say, there's nothing here that I'm responding to. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think just generally for the the sake of people continuing to view you know, cinema as, as a great art form that it is, right? Um, you need you need the the whole scope of it, right? You need the you need the blockbusters that people love and you need the the Oscar bait movies and you need this the even smaller indies that maybe don't get a ton of attention but appeal to to a, a certain crowd. Because if you start to lose people, it, it becomes kind of a slippery slope. And we really don't want to get into that into that kind of mindset where people are just kind of giving up on theaters because there hasn't been something in there for a few months that doesn't interest them. It's, you know, the, the conversation, you know, about the dynamic between streaming and theatrical is, is so important and, and so vital. And it's, it's a really, to me, it's a, it's a, it's about what this art form is mm-hmm. and how it is supposed to be experienced. And, and that's, on a big screen because that's the way the artists, you know, intend for it to be experienced. Does that mean you're not going to watch a movie at home? Of course not. I see you've got, you know, plenty, plenty of, you know, Blu-rays and DVDs back there. And then you see a lot of movies in theaters. It's not an either or situation, but I think the the way that people fall in love with movies and in the Mm -hmm. cinema is by going to see movies in theaters. That's Mm -hmm. it. So. Well, and knowing that we have titles uh, in the coming months from the likes of uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, obviously Damien Chazelle is coming back to theaters uh, with Babylon, uh, some really exciting titles where we've seen trailers too already, whether it be uh, Don't Worry Darling uh, from Olivia Wilde or uh, The Woman King, which looks fantastic from Gina Prince-Bythewood. Um, and then, uh, you know, we talk every, I think every week on the show about Christopher Nolan and the fact that he's probably going to reinvent cinema uh, with Oppenheimer. So the future looks incredibly bright. Uh, and I well, just it does. And I mean, you mentioned Oppenheimer and that's, that's really funny to me because when I talk about like release schedule diversity, I'm, I think it's hysterical and awesome that Barbie and Oppenheimer are going to be opening <laughs> on the same day in, in yeah. July next year. Like that's yeah. exactly what I'm talking about in terms of like 
diversity of the release schedule. And even, I mean, the summer to an extent, I mean, I was going back in, in preparation for this interview and looking at what I saw during mm-hmm. the summer and going back. And the four movies that I saw in a row were Top Gun Maverick, Crimes of the Future, Marcel the Shell, and Elvis. Right. Like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, And after that, I felt great because those four movies could not be any more different than that. So, Well, and that's exactly why I wanted to have you on, Phil, just to sort of talk about the health of the industry right now and, and our excitement for things to come. So thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you again to Phil for coming on. Thank you to uh, NATO for their support. And make sure you guys keep it here because we're going to have a lot of cool things with NATO uh, coming to the show down the line. Some fun things that we're working out with them. Um, and that transitions us right into the things that are coming to movie theaters. We can send you guys to go see. Uh, there's a movie called Fall, which I've never heard of before. I'm not quite sure what that is. I do like a movie theaters. called The Fall, which is really great, by the way. If you haven't seen which that one movie. Is the Fall? Do you remember like the? Oh, I'll pull it up the director's name. Hold on a second. Is that to t- Jennifer Tarek? Lopez? Yeah, 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 I know that one. I know what you're talking about. He was a very visually stimulating director. Wait, do I have the name wrong? The Cell was the Jennifer Lopez movie. Oh, what am I- that's the one. I was actually thinking of that one as well too. You're thinking Wait, of the wh- Descent. You're thinking of well, the no, no, there was a no. There was a movie called The Fall. I, I was okay. knew I was right. It's Tarsem Singh. Yes. Oh, it is. It had, okay. It had Lee Pace. It came out in um, 2006. It was an incredible visual film. Um, no, is that the this, same filmmaker as The it. Cell? I think so, yeah. Oh, pretty sure. Okay, yeah, it is. This right, is not sorry. that. Uh, in addition to the, a movie called Fall, there's another movie called Summering, which seems like they should be a double feature of some sort, season. But we don't have that either. But Kevin did go see uh, Mac and Rita on behalf of yeah. speaking with Diane Keaton. How's Mac and Rita? It's one of these body swap movies, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I did the junket recently for it. Uh, it has Diane Keaton, Elizabeth Lale. Uh, Elizabeth Lale is uh, a 30-year-old writer, essentially, and uh, she dreams, her dream as a kid, she always wanted to be an adult. She always wanted to be older and kind of just more chill and and uh, always didn't feel like she fit in in her life. And so she goes, uh, Simon Rex, who actually is in the movie, um, uh, she goes to see him uh, he has some kind of like spiritual uh tent that he works in and he he puts her in this like tanning bed thing and she uh comes out of it as diane keaton uh, gotcha. a woman in her 70s uh and you know she's freaking out she's like why do i why why do i look older and etc and so um the movie's kind of really about her embracing who she is and like it's okay that she is 30 years old and kind of wants to be more like an older individual. Um, and it, 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 it plays with a lot of themes of social media and Diane Keaton, by the way, you just, you forget like how brilliant she is as a physical comedian. Um, because I mean, you think about like the, her career has been so interesting and like all the just films, a pro. She's made, oh. huge career, but like, but yeah, think yeah, about yeah. all the different things she's done with like, obviously with Coppola and Woody Allen and Annie Hall and the Godfather films. Um, but it's, it, it's this latter part of her career that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and, and I just, what was the film she did with Keanu Reeves? Uh, was it something's got to give? Am I, do I have that? I think right? that's right. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah. 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 She is just so funny, like physically funny. Um, and in this film, she has a few moments where they give her, scenes where she gets to be physically funny either doing pilates or she her character does mushrooms at one point um and i I honestly (laughs) just loved i know i enjoyed watching diane keaton in this realm um is the movie original it feels you know like you've seen it before and it's covering themes that you've seen before also a shout out taylor page who's in it um i'm a really big fan of because obviously she was great in zola um but she did a great track on kendrick's new record called we cry together 
uh, where her and Kendra go back and forth in an argument in a relationship. And it's, it's honestly like, it's incredible. That album, Mr. Moral and the Big Steppers is, is, is brilliant. Um, but yeah, so the movie Macarita, it, it, I enjoyed it. I mean, it was, you know, hour 40 minutes or whatever. And I just kind of was like, it was, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to turn my brain off and watch it kind of movie, but it was more of like, I just kind of enjoyed not watching something that was so heavy and yeah. so violent. And so, you know what I mean? And, and again, it depends on where you are in your life. When you sit down and watch something, Macarita might not hit me like it did tomorrow or something like that. But I just enjoyed Diane Keaton. I also enjoyed the message of being yourself, which is, again, is not an original thought, but it is something that Diane Keaton puts forth really well in the film. Um, yeah, I just I find her career fascinating and I just love how funny she is. And I think she's an underrated comedian, um, mm-hmm. an underrated physical comedian. Um, very funny. Uh, and I think it, 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 to me, it's interesting to watch her in this part of her career. I think she's like, I think she's mid seventies or so. Um, she's and she, be at least. she's sure. just still being awesome. And I just love seeing her still work and not, you know, that's why I like, I think it's great to see uh, people working older into their years. I'm going to make a great transition um, because Lee Pace, who you mentioned earlier, uh, is co-starring in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. <laughs> so uh, great. Got a little Lee Pace segment going on here in the uh, This Week in Movies. Um, bodies, Bodies, Bodies is terrific. Uh, it's probably going to make my top 10 uh, because really? I rewatched it. I can't wait until time. you see it, Kev. Yeah. Man, yeah. I am missing out on this one. I need to see this one. I rewatched it a second time and I, I wanted to see if it held up outside of the festival, the rarefied air of the festival. There it is. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And uh, and it did. It it was it's still terrific. And it's great, too, because it is like I, I kind of mentioned an Agatha Christie type mystery. And so once you know the solution, I kind of wondered how much of a repeat value uh, it would have. It's basically uh, a group of 20 somethings who are getting together in a mansion for a hurricane party. There's a hurricane on the way. Uh, they know, so they've strapped themselves in with uh, food and alcohol and drugs, and they're just going to party their way through it. Um, and they want to, in the middle of it, play this game called Bodies, 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 which is basically uh, you pick a name out of a hat, and one person has to end up being the killer. They turn off all the lights, uh, and that person has to just touch somebody in the dark, and if you've been touched, you're the body, and you you die kind of thing. Um, but, of course, little by little, uh, each of them start to get killed off uh, individually, and you start to figure out like who it might be. But like, ready or not? Is it like ready or not? It's a no. totally different tone. Totally yeah. different tone. Yeah. Um, and it's not. You know where I'm going with that, though, right? That was like a game. It's it's I not. Do. Yeah, but it's yeah. not. That was like very. I don't know if kitschy is the word. That was very much like you're sitting down to watch them play this game. This is very much like it's 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 very real in that it just feels like a bunch of 20 somethings having a party. Yeah. And then things start to go awry and like a kind okay. of like a slashery kind of in a and vibe versus like the the fun playing playing a game thing. Because yeah. one of the really really smart things that the script does beforehand is um through little bits of dialogue you start to figure out tensions that exist between certain characters. Yeah. Um, Amanda, Amanda Stenberg is the main character, essentially, who is coming back from being away. And these are all of her grown up friends, uh, the kids that she grew up with, basically. And she's bringing back a girlfriend uh, played by Maria Bakalova, who the, the group hasn't met yet. And so introducing her into the social dynamic is uncomfortable as it is. But then like Pete Davidson has some kind of, uh, romantic relationship with some of the characters 
and the way that they snap at each other before any of this starts to go down is interesting. So the whole time you're already playing uh, a game of like, who's mad at who, who might be going after who. Yeah. And so when the bodies start showing up, there's a there's a million different ways that the movie can go. Lee Pace Smart. plays um, the boyfriend of one of the friends and he's older and he was in the military. And so his whole vibe is just like, I don't necessarily know what's going on here. And at different times, he'll say to them, he'll be like, oh, you guys are just fucking with me, aren't you? <laughs> kind of thing. And and at that point, you're also just like, oh, are they like what's going on? It, it really keeps you on your toes uh, the whole time that you're doing it. And the, and the director, um, Helena, is just so creative uh and the way that she used this it's an actual mansion that they found that they can shoot in and she knew that it had a lot of the locations that they had written into the script and the way that they could film it uh she brought up really something uh, i thought in the interview if you guys got a chance to listen to it earlier about how since it was a hurricane party it allowed her to have these different things that the group would have already brought uh to Mm. a darkened house uh one of the characters uh, played by rachel sennett uh, she has neon uh, bracelets and 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 uh, necklaces all over her because she knew the power was going to go out essentially. But it allowed them to sort of capture this uh, visually. It looks incredibly cool in the movie, and so uh, it's great. Everything about it is great. Um, it's one of those ones, and we talked a bit about this with the cast during the the um, uh, TV slots that are going to be on Cinema Blend that. This type of premise is really only great, and and the movie's going to stand the test of time if it sticks the landing. You know, it could it could have a very uh, unsatisfying conclusion, and you'd be like, "Oh, it was fun until that point." But this movie, I, I feel, really, really sticks the landing, and so I can't wait for Kevin to see it. I can't wait for more people to go see it, so we can talk a little bit more at length about bodies, bodies, bodies. But it's uh, going wide this this um, yes. weekend, and you guys absolutely need to go out of your way to to see it. So it's terrific. I'm excited. I, you, you sold me, man. I've mentioned that I love this movie. Um, I agree with everything Sean just said. I have not had a chance to see it uh, a second time yet, so I'm very excited to. Kevin, I am dying for you to see it because it's really good. It's really smart. Um, and it, I don't think you've listened to our interview yet, but she talks about mm-hmm. some of the lighting that her and her cinematographer had to do where like they actually had the actors light themselves with like their phones and stuff because they're like walking around yeah. with the phones. And Sean mentions like the glow stick thing. It's really smart in the way that it's shot. It's really smart in the way that the, it's plotted together. Um, and and the characters themselves are just incredibly believable. Like, it feels like she has her finger on the pulse of that generation and sort of what she wanted to say about that generation mm-hmm. and, 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 and our society in general, um, while also having a ton of fun uh, with this kind of murder mystery plot that that's playing out. And to reiterate to Sean, it, it sticks the landing. Like you wouldn't believe it's so good. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> awesome. It's so yeah. good. It's so good. Yes. So, uh, bodies, 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 make sure you guys check that out. All right. That brings us to the blend game. Um, bodies, bodies, bodies was not based on a book, uh, but we have been covering a number of different films. They would have called it books, uh, books, books, Sean. Yes, they would have. That would have been a, I, I'd have gone and seen that. Um, Gabe, we're going to start with you. You get okay. to play book to movie blend. Uh, where are you going? You said you're going with a pretty simple. I'm just going to keep it easy. Something that came right to you. Well, I'm just going to keep it easy. And and you, people might argue it's recency bias, although I saw some people write in with this pick um, and I don't disagree with them, clearly. Um, and it's Dune. It's Dune. I, I, if you've been listening to the show for at least a year now or whatever, you'll know that uh, Dune for the longest time has been, you know, I would call my favorite book ever. Um, something I poured over as a kid and fell in love with science fiction in that sort of medium um, and has influenced kind of the way I 
digest science fiction and, and, and things since then. So I, I love that book and the fact that that book means so much to me um, and that movie is able to nail it, I think is why I have to pick it. I think that it's it's the tone is perfect. It I, I would say the movie is approachable in the ways that maybe the book isn't necessarily at, at face value, uh, mm-hmm. but it doesn't betray the book in any way while making that true. Um, I think it's casted perfectly. I think that when I'm, when I watch that movie, I'm excited to read the book. And I don't know that I usually have that feeling with like a book to movie blend or a book to movie uh, adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is my pick. There's a ton out there. I won't, I won't run through that. There's a ton out there because that kind of like Hollywood's been mining books for content for for decades um there's there's so many out there that like you could pick as as favorite movies and a lot that i had you didn't have to read the book for this game to work um but there were a lot where i was like i haven't read the book so i wonder if it doesn't have the same connection that i have to dune having having read the book as i right right, right. dune is my pick all right i'm gonna try to cheat uh and tell me if i can do this um can i do the harry potter series or do the I have to whole, pick a specific series? I would yeah. say I would say pick your favorite of the Harry Potter movies, but you can say the whole series is your. I want to say the whole series, but let me explain why I want to. Ex- I want to say the whole series. Okay. Um, this was a pretty remarkable run, um, and and I have said this before, and I still sort of stand by it. Although maybe the MCU has now re- replaced this. Um, I think it's the most impressive, uh, book to movie adaptation, um that I've ever seen the way that they pulled it off because you have to remember that they started adapting the series before she'd even finished writing the books, right? They cast those kids um, and um, they perfectly cast those kids um, and then needed those kids to not have an Ezra Miller moment, you know, or something that just like blew them up out of the, the ability to continue playing the role. Like all those kids stayed like lock solid in step with their roles and their parts and allowed them to complete this franchise. All of the supporting parts are again, perfectly, perfectly cast. Alan Rickman, um, even when you lose uh, Richard Harris and you replace him with Michael Gambon, uh, you know, later on to get into Gary Oldman joining the franchise. um, And uh, God, who played Mad Eye Moody? Why am I blanking on Brendan Gleeson? Brendan Gleeson. Oh yeah. Across the board, Maggie Smith, you know, like, uh, Everyone in that movie is perfectly casual. Helena Bonham Carter joining later, and then Ray Fiennes playing Voldemort. Like every time they added another level to that to the those adaptations, uh, I found it to be staggering. Um, and I, I, if I had to pick, I don't know if, if that book is my favorite, but but Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite film in it. Um, yeah. And it's unfortunate that Quran's is third. Because I think he showed the full potential of what those movies could be. Yeah. Um, and then they were great you know from that point forward but they were not transcendent the way that that movie is um and they settled into uh who's the guy who's doing all the fantastic is david yates they settled into david yates as a storyteller um and he's become the voice of that franchise i wish the only thing would have made it better if they just kept trading off directors or allowing more people to sort of bring their voices to it um but i'm gonna throw that out there uh i really enjoyed the books i think it's really fun when somebody can can create and all the things with J.K. Rowling aside, when someone's able to create a universe uh, from scratch, and I've seen those hilarious TikToks to tell you that it's basically just Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it is just Star Wars. But like, 
and we were just in Universal when we went to Orlando and to step into the Harry Potter world at Universal Studios is you're reminded again of like this world that she built, you know, of of the the school and Diagon Alley and all these really cool places that you can just go visit, ride the train. You know, it's it's exciting. You're on the train that connects the two Harry Potter worlds and they do this really cute gimmick where like shadows of the characters come up to the mm-hmm. door that you're sitting in. And they're like, oh, I think we can use this one. And they're like, no, I think it's occupied by fir- by uh, first years. And it's the characters. It's their voices. You know who it is. And it just That's permeates cool. your pop culture. And it's, I mean, that adaptation sh- either shouldn't have worked as well as it did from the start or should have probably fallen apart at some point throughout it. And I think it stays extremely consistent all the way through to the end, even though I know that, like, Kevin has a problem with the final final confrontation. Maybe it's a little bit too short admittedly but there are amazing moments throughout the course of the harry potter franchise and i'm going to pick uh pick that for book to movie blend and again and, and like saying like gabe said there are th- millions of, of options yeah. you could have gone with so that's what i i also okay. i've i've talked about how much i love that series and i would i would agree with you on that and i would say to your point because i love when you bring up just how perfectly it went for them save the creator of the franchise in recent years going off the rails, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but for the, yes. for the, for the actors and for the films, how great it went. Um, I always point to that as, and maybe it's weird to think Chris Columbus is underrated, but I think Chris Columbus is underrated because he started that franchise. He cast those for actors. Sure. He built the visual world. Like I think so much of that he set on a, on the right track, um, let alone home alone and, and all the things that he's done. I think people kind of forget just how much of a master stroke. Yeah, how much of a master stroke that was for him um as being as a world builder and as being able to tell us stories at that scale. Sure. And he so. started it. He had to start the whole visual language exactly. of that. Of exactly. The he had movie. to cast those actors. He had to sit down with probably yeah. th- th- well definitely thousands of kids and figure out who was going to play these characters that they knew that they were buying into at that point of like you know this is going to be a long time. This is going to be a decade of us making these. Like they, they yeah. were ready for that. It's a hell of a gamble. And uh, literally, and in terms of that franchise. It were, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's a good way, good way to put it. Kev, where'd you go? Um, I'm going to kind of go in in your lane a bit, and I'm going to choose the first three Lord of the Rings films, um, oh, just because. Yeah. Now, now I do want to preface this by saying that I never read the Lord of the Rings books. Um, but the reason why I chose this is because I'm. I think it was like the first time I really felt thankful that a filmmaker translated a material that I just wasn't probably ever going to read. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, films like Jaws and Jurassic Park and and Godfather that are all based on books. I mean, those were all those were all movies before I knew they were books. Does that make sense in my mm-hmm. mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I just didn't really think of them as books. So growing up, my dad always had The Hobbit um, book on this like one shelf or this one table and I would go buy it because I lived in the house every single day and I would just look at the books. And I remember seeing the Hobbit and Tolkien's name and I didn't really, I mean, I didn't know what I was looking at, but then when they announced the Lord, Lord of the Rings films or the trailers came out for it, I'm like, Oh, that's the same guy who wrote, you know, the, the Hobbit yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is how my mind was putting it all together. Um, and then I went and saw fellowship of the ring and I, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before. Just the way Peter Jackson brought that to the screen. And, um, just kind of knowing like how it was shot, how it was broken up, how it was done, translating a book that kind of seemed impossible from from what I had heard about it. Um, excuse me. And the books were super long. Right. So I just in my head and I have I have ADHD. So I, I just I have a hard time sitting through a, a whole book. I don't read as much as I should. 
And so when I saw Fellowship of the Ring, I was like, I didn't know what Peter Jackson had done in terms of translation because I didn't read the source material, but I knew that I was watching something that was coming from somebody who was so passionate about the material that they read mm. that they were then giving their visual perspective on what they read. And I never wanted to go back and read it because I didn't want to have any other image of that world outside of what Peter Jackson gave me. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember and it's interesting because I'm not a huge fantasy fan in terms of genre. Um, I, 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 I love all genres of films, but Lord of the Rings probably wouldn't have spoken to me um, that I know of. Um, but when I sat down and watched the visual language of that film and the way Howard Shore scored it and the way Peter Jackson decided to shoot it and the practical nature of what they were doing with, uh, with, um, well, I'm blanking on the terminology force perspective. Force perspective yeah. And kind yeah. of having the hobbits look smaller than, than Gandalf. And, um, and then that Howard Shore score that became, that's Lord of the Rings for me. I, 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 the books are a completely different entity. I don't, I don't even want to open them. And I, I know it sounds kind of, closed off but I, I i just don't want another image of what that world is I, mm -hmm. I i like what peter jackson's given me um and maybe one day i'll you know if i grow old and i have all this time on my hands i'll 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 peek into it but i'm not going to not be able to not see elijah yeah. wood and sean astin everybody um, who's involved in the film but return of the king was a monumental moment for me as, a, as an audience member because i had never seen action on that scale before and i just and again i'm choosing this just purely based on the cinematic aspect of what peter jackson did but it was the first time and i've said this before that i i had tears in my eyes just based on purely spectacle of the action like the mm -hmm. the large epic scale of that made ending fight where you're having these i, I would you call them elephant characters sweeping mm -hmm. people off the ground um, in these fight sequences. And it's funny because I'm sitting in these theaters with, with actual Lord of the Rings fans who are experiencing the film themselves. And then I'm the guy who has not read the material, who's just kind of taking it in from what Peter Jackson's giving me. Um, and it weird, it's weird because my, my journey with, with Peter Jackson has been really strange because when I was in sixth grade, my buddy rented this film called dead alive or brain dead, wherever, wherever you might find that film. It's has different titles. Very, it's a brutal zombie film. Um, and then I saw that and then I saw Meet the Feebles and then I saw The Frighteners with Michael J. Fox. And I don't you know, I didn't understand what I was watching yet. I didn't. But that filmmaker became ingrained in my in my mind. Um, and so when I saw the visual language of Lord of the Rings, which as a big budget film, it's still shot like a really cool old school, like those canted angles. Well, they argue the, it's an indie. You know, yeah, it, that it, cast it, argues it's an indie. And it's a huge production, and obviously the effects are incredible, but it, it felt like um, it was coming from a, um, the filmmaker that I had watched, mm -hmm. Dead Alive and The Frighteners, just that, it's just weird, like really strange tone. Um, and then just the birth of Andy Serkis, um, in, in terms yeah. of my, my particular perspective, learning about performance capture through what he was doing. Performance capture changed in that, in that series of films essentially. And, and obviously has grown with the apes movies, but, um, but yeah, so anyway, so Lord of the Rings just has a lot of, there's a lot of attachment that I have emotionally to what that film gave me. And sure. it's, it's, since it's based on a very, very popular um, uh, book series, like I, I just, you know, that, that to me was the first one that came to mind. 
Cool. Um, yeah. So that, that, that always meant a lot to me. Kev, that series for me is huge for it's one of those projects that's huge for it's behind the scenes material. Like oh, at, yeah. the, at that age, being obsessed and kind of learning how those the, how the magic was made. Yeah. That, and even and even the Hobbit behind the scenes stuff is, is really interesting, too. But like learning how they made it and watching that was has, is a part of the emotional experience for me as well. There's a clip 100%. that I, I watch when I want to feel I don't know, this is cheesy, but like the, the magic of movie making and like excited about that is the the last shot. I don't know if you've, if you've seen that clip where it's just him and Elijah. It's Peter Jackson and Elijah and they're doing no. it's the last. So they're, it's the last shot of the Lord of the Rings, like right. the, the, not of the Lord of the Rings that they're doing. And I, although I, it is at the end of Return of the King when he's right. writing in his in the book. You're talking about a behind the scenes shot. Behind though, the right? scenes shot. Okay. And it's such an emotional thing. I get teared up watching it. And uh, Peter Jackson doesn't want to stop. He's been doing this for, was it three years or whatever they, they shot yeah. those back to back? He's like in tears and just like telling Elijah, we're like, let's, let's do one more. Like, let's just do it. He, they just keep doing, he's like, let's just keep doing one more. Let's do one more. <laughs> and they just oh, do them sweet. over and over again. Cause they like, they don't want to stop. And then he says cut and he's yeah. like, we're done. And then they just like hold each other for like minutes, like bawling. Cause they, they've been on this journey. Wow. I love that. I'm getting kind of teared up thinking about it. I love that. That's clip. amazing. That's how real blood's going to end one day. Yeah. 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 Well, Gabe <laughs> brings up a really good point. That's another. <laughs> no, but Gabe, Gabe brings up a good, good point because it was, you're right. Lord of the Rings was, a, was really kind of my vehicle into special features. I mean, I always, I always dug them, but like when, when you learn about, performance capture for the first time and he was so like, transparent about it too was a huge thing oh gosh, like they invested yeah. in like showing you how it was made because they knew yeah. they were breaking ground and dude when the king when when king kong came out i remember getting like a special edition dvd that like was like a booklet of how because again that was also andy circus playing king kong and like it, you're so right gabe it's like gosh like, like jackson was kind of really integral in my filmmaking understanding of the process sure. and like like it, 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 he really was it's it's funny i don't even really honestly stop to think about how much peter jackson really meant to me and i and i, I sat down with him one time only and it was nice because i got like nine minutes with him for this for that incredible world war one film that he uh re-brought back um and just to sit with him and talk lord of the rings was was pretty special man like that was yeah i i kind of sleep on how much Peter Jackson kind of influenced By my the way, love of filmmaking. Yeah. The uh the King Kong New York sequence on the on the new LG TV. Pretty Good. spectacular. Dude, <laughs> yeah, pretty King, spectacular. King Kong is an I like King Kong because it's about movie making. Yeah. Like yeah. I really I I know people don't it's love probably that film. a really great hour and forty five minute movie, but he made it three hours. I he, think it's awesome. It's excessive. Is I mean, it one of those? Excessive. He had a little too much, too much clout. Probably. And this is oh, after Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Too much. And passion but, for the source material. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, he wasn't going to cut any of it, essentially. But yeah. someone needed to come in there. Like when Quentin tells that story about, you know, getting Sally cutting up the scene from Pulp Fiction. Oh, she was like, go, yeah. She's like, go take a walk. Go get a coffee. <laughs> when you come back, there's going to be a better version of this movie. Of this the scene Bruce Willis scene? Yeah, the Bruce Willis cab scene. Oh, I forgot about that. We got to touch base on the fact that Kevin doesn't listen to our interviews with Quentin Tarantino. Have you listened no, to any of them? I can't listen to stuff. It's like <laughs> I, 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 it's it's too weird for so me. Weird. No, I, I, I'm there. I, I I edit my own videos for for in general, and I I it's weird. For me. I mean, I, yeah. I I I have a really hard time watching it. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I I've gone back and listened to clips of things I've never the. 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever listened to any. It's of pretty them. good. You should listen to them. They're, they're I mean, I was good. there. <laughs> they turned out pretty good. <laughs> I was there asking yeah. questions. I remember. Um, all right. But, all right, I'll go back and listen to it at some point. I think Jake is going to pick Jurassic Park, so let's throw it to Jake and see if uh, if his pick for a book to movie blend is indeed Jurassic Park. Hey guys, I am so sorry I could not be on this week's show. I'm in a bit of a magical place right now. I know this week is all about uh, book adaptations and our favorite book to movie adaptations, and you know one of the best, really, of all time is where I'm at right now. Take a look behind me. I am in Dyersville, Iowa. Some people call it heaven. Some people call it the shooting location to the 1989 classic Field of Dreams, uh, which would be an incredible pick for anyone if you wanted to pick that because so much magic took place on that field where I'm standing right behind me. I really hope you're watching this on YouTube. Otherwise, it means nothing to you. But, you know, if I were to pick my favorite adaptation, it would probably be Jaws or it might be uh, Jurassic Park. Spielberg knows how to adapt uh, a novel like no other director. Uh, but I've talked about those movies so extensively, so I really wanted to try to pick something fresh. And I really want to pick uh, Peter Jackson's adaptation of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, what J.R.R. Tolkien did with his novels uh, it meant a lot to so much people. He created a world uh, on those pages, and that is obviously a phenomenal achievement that, that is unreachable in the world of literature. But what Peter Jackson did, he didn't just adapt those words for the screen. He brought Middle Earth to life. He brought Frodo and Gandalf and the orcs and Saruman and Sauron to life in a way that I'm not sure anyone else could. I mean, I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks with Amazon. But those adaptations, I think, are some of the greatest achievements of all time, just in terms of on a technical, on an emotional, on a cinematic level. I mean, those are some of the greatest cinematic experiences I've ever had in my entire life. So maybe not necessarily my favorite because my favorites are movies I've talked about way too much, but I had to give a shout out to that. And then of course, to where I'm at right now, beautiful Dyersville, Iowa, Field of Dreams, an amazing cinematic adaptation, 1989. On that note, guys, I'll be back with you next week. Thank you for giving me the week off as I'm here in heaven. Love you guys, miss you guys, be back soon. Thanks, Jake, for throwing in a pick. Audience picks. Uh, Mike Bratch went with The Postman, and then he said, yes, the 1997 Kevin Costner three-hour epic, which I didn't know was a book. So there's that. James Vasquez went with Nocturnal Animals, Aerial Pace, The, mm. the Hours. Uh, Danny Gurch, when you started to say a modern film uh, or a recent film, Gabe, this is where I thought you were going. Danny Gurch said Greta Gerwig's Little Women, uh, oh, which yeah. is a terrific adaptation I of a love, obviously love, classic love book. Movie. Uh, Amanda Young went with Catching Fire, and Kimberly Sue said Perks of Being a Wallflower, mm. uh, which is a terrific film, and I didn't know it was a book either. So there you go. Thank you very much, yeah. everybody, for participating. Uh, next Did you know game, Forrest Gump was a book? Uh, I only know that because I, I was looking up uh, books that are adapted to movies, and I saw it on I the didn't. list. But no, I didn't know that prior to Neither that. did I. I learned that today when I was looking up like books to movies. I didn't. Gabe, did you know Forrest Gump was a book? Um, I, I think Jake has talked about that at one point as the only reason I knew. I saw it as well when I was doing research and I was like, I, was like, I reminded of it, but I, I wouldn't. Have I know that there's that. a sequel too. there's a book sequel to Forrest Gump. Yeah, really? the, pers the person who wrote Forrest Gump wrote another Forrest Gump book. Like Dr. Think, Sleep style? Yeah. Less supernatural. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, yes, less uh, dead children uh, <laughs> on baseball fields. Yeah. Um, but I, and I also do think that like Zemeckis and Hanks talked about potentially doing it, but that the story is not good. The story is not there. You, you can't do a sequel to that movie. Sean would argue it was never there, but. 
Good point. Yes. <laughs> uh, next week, hashtag Allison Bree blend. Hashtag Allison Bree blend. Interesting. So let us know your pick via email at yeah, realblend.com. Like and I'll uh, say it's, use... it's actors are performance. Sorry, actors are performance. So TV is open. Her especially. She has a ton of great television oh, work. People love. I, I have open. to ask you, Gabe. How did you come to the Allison Bree pick? She has a movie coming out next week. Um, okay. which was like, oh, okay, Weird. that's a good excuse. And then I, uh, we just hadn't played oh, her yet. A, and I looked at her photography and I was like, yeah, she's got a ton of really great stuff. I, 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 it's, I always love like, like as Gable pull random ones out, but I'm always wondering what the narrative is. Like, okay. She has a movie coming out. It makes sense. I usually um, try to go with someone who has a movie coming out. Uh, yeah. if I can, we're running out of names to necessarily do that with, but yeah, it's usually random. Dave Franco is directing a movie uh, with the two of them, I believe, soon. It's called that Somebody might... I Used to Know. Yeah, Thank and you. so yeah. she and Dave wrote it, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Or Allison and, and Dave wrote it, and uh, obviously, you know, they're married in real life. Um, but uh, yeah, I just interviewed Dave Franco the other day for Day Shift, and uh, I told him I'm excited about that movie. I think, is he releasing that this year? Because uh, he's I a really, so. really good director. We like we had him on for the rental, and, and yeah. we, should, we should hopefully get him on. It'd be cool to get him and Allison. a great Allison. interview, too. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. Uh, maybe we can get him and Allison on for that because she wrote it too with him. Yeah, um, I'm assuming they wrote it. in your your listening. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> please yeah. hook us up. Um, I asked Jamie Fox not to detour off that because he was paired with James, uh, Dave Franco for oh, that's uh, right Day Shift, and he also directed his first movie, uh, Jamie Fox, and it's called All Star Weekend. Um, hmm. But it cool. has been been finished for a while. And has been kind of unreleasable um, <laughs> because what he told me in the interviews for Day Shift was that the humor really pushes the envelope. Oh, and he said we went for it. Um, yeah, but he said I don't know if the humor is going to work. I think uh, I've nowadays. heard about this. It's, it has a big cast, doesn't it? It has a huge cast, and like RD, RDJ plays... isn't it right? I think is I think the one so. that comes to mind. And he plays three characters and it takes place over All-Star Weekend, the NBA All-Star Weekend. And I think there's an actor, wow. there's a, an actor who plays LeBron James. <laughs> and uh, I think it's pretty surreal. Like, I think the things they went for. But this just makes me want to see it more. You know, yeah, the way that he, too. I don't know if it maybe has a Tropic Thunder type thing. You know, you know how we had a conversation one time of like, could they make Tropic Thunder now? Uh, or did they just get away with whatever they got away with when they released I would, it? I, yeah, well, we've said that. I said you can because if you're saying you can't, then you're saying it's trying to say something it's not. It's trying to. No, I, I just don't think yeah. Robert Downey Jr. would do that today. Well, now that Iron Man's dead, he might. But Maybe. also, did you guys see the news that Macquarie and and Cruz are going to be adapting a, a, a possible spinoff yeah. of Les Grossman? Well, I what that. I read was they don't know yes. if it's going to be like a whole project or if he's going to be a part of <laughs> one of the other two that they're doing. Okay. Which I mean, put him in a mission. Put him in a mission. No, movie? no, it's two two other ones oh. outside of mission. They're they're working on. Yeah, It'd be really T- damn funny if uh, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise could do... had to take down Les Grossman. Fat hands and I want to dance. That's my favorite Tom Cruise quote. <laughs> he could do anything he wants. Oh yeah, like Absolutely. like I mean yeah, the I mean, fact Tom that Cruise, Top Gun. No no no. Oh no, I I would argue that Top Gun has given him way more. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, avenues. The yeah, fact yeah. that that movie made over a billion dollars. It's like, given him. He, it, it's it's yeah. given him a bigger budget outside of franchises. But like he's right. always been able to tie himself to the side of a plane. You know who's sure. totally underrated in the Les Grossman scenes? Bill Hader. Oh, he's Bill so good. Oh, Bill he's... Hader is hilarious. Swinging past your knees. He's his little ad libs. So <laughs> Dude, I told you guys a story. 
I was at the Tropic Thunder premiere and I didn't know Cruz was in it. And Cruz shows up and there, I have like this amazing video of the entire cast, like posing for a photo. I, I was like, I was young. I didn't know what I was. I, I, I wasn't in the like TV junkets yet. So it was crazy seeing all these like stars, like 15 feet in front of me. I'm like, why is Tom Cruise here? Oh, he produced the film. Okay, cool. And then I yeah. sat down and watched the film and I had zero clue that that was Tom Cruise until the credits rolled. So like, funny. that's how, like, I mean, again, I know I might sound naive, but I did not know that was him. It was such he's, a great performance. He's under a lot of makeup. It's so good. It's great. Anyways. All right. So um, we'll be back on Monday. Thank you very much, guys, for listening to this week's episode on Monday. Uh, Rebel and Premium. So check out the description below to find out how you can uh, become a member of that family. New episodes uh, drop every Monday morning. Uh, again, check the description for how to sign up um, on social media. We're at at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV. At Sean underscore O'Connell, at Gabe Kovach, and the show is at Real Blend. Uh, Jake, at this point, will probably have posted a couple of photos from the Field of Dreams, because that's where he is right now covering that. Um, and we will have some more information about guests that we're going to be having in the future. So until next time, the Fablemans. Hockey pads and Hockey pads. Oppenheimer. Op- Oppenheimer <laughs> and Oppenheimer. Just all of it. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 